Welcome back to PS Editor's Podcast. I'm Greg Bruno. A popular narrative in the Trump era is that democracy is on its deathbed. From Hungary to Turkey, autocrats and populists are upending liberal norms, practices, and policies. Something similar is happening in major developing countries as well, from the Philippines to Brazil. So where does India fit into this story? The country's GDP has increased roughly six-fold since 1990, and today is growing by more than 7% per year, considerably higher than the global average of 2.6%. According to a 2017 study, India will hold as much as 15% of the global wealth in the year 2050, surpassing both the United States and the European Union. With the United States in retreat and the European Union weakened by infighting, India is giving Asia much-needed ballast to compensate for China's growing assertiveness. But as my guest today has written, India's place in the regional and global order remains a work in progress. Brahma Chalani is a professor of strategic studies at the New Delhi-based Center for Policy Research, and he says that while all the pieces are in place for India's emergence as an economic and political powerhouse, the trick will be assembling them. Let's find out why. <clears throat> Hello. Hi, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Fine. Can you hear me well? We can. Thanks for joining us today on PS Editor's podcast. Oh, thank you. Well, it's wonderful to have you. We have much to cover. Uh, and so let's get right to it if we could. You typically spend much time talking about geopolitical issues, but I'd like to start with a look at India and how those geopolitical issues apply, and particularly used some of the points that you raised in a recent paper entitled The Modi Phenomenon and the Remaking of India. Now, in that essay, you discussed how Prime Minister Narendra Modi was reshaping the world's largest democracy and laid out some of his goals for Indian foreign policy. So if you could walk us through Modi's economic and political reform agenda, what has he tried to do and what's the mood in India today? Modi has uh, reshaped Indian politics. Uh, he comes from a very... Um, Poor background. Uh, he grew up uh, uh, finding it difficult to make ends meet, but he has risen as India's prime minister and he has reshaped his own ruling party, the BJP. The BJP under Modi's leadership has become by far India's biggest party. It uh, dominates the political scene. It uh, governs the vast majority of states in the country. And the credit largely goes to Modi because he has broadened the base of the party, allowed the party to extend its roots to the rural areas. And um, he himself has emerged as a towering figure. But like Trump in the United States, Modi is a very polarizing figure in India. So if you ask Indians about Modi, either they like him very much or they hate him. Uh, it's very difficult to find people who have a neutral view on Modi. But in terms of his um, uh, foreign policy approach, he has sought to expand India's um, global reach. He's seeking to make India a more important global player. And his foreign policy approach very much ties with the Washington approach of a free, of a free open 
and democratic-led Indo-Pacific region. And India, has an, India, in fact, has become an important player in the American strategy of a free and open Indo-Pacific uh, region. Right, right. Uh, and as you've written uh, in, that, in that essay that we just mentioned, Modi, in your view, may in fact be called or be known as the quote-unquote first foreign policy president since India's independence. I wonder what you mean by that. I mean, obviously, India's relationship with the world has, has uh, emerged and developed and changed over time. But why, in your view, is Modi so uniquely different in his approach to both regional uh, and uh, further field relationships? Modi is uh, defining and shaping India's foreign policy personally. He has uh, turned foreign policy into his own portfolio to the extent that the Indian foreign minister and the foreign ministry in general have been marginalized. The decision making on foreign policy is now concentrated in the prime minister's office because Modi is directly shaping India's foreign policy. Uh, I think we haven't had a prime minister in India who has been so personally invested in uh, shaping foreign policy since Nehru. Nehru was the first Indian prime minister after independence. And for him, uh, personal uh, foreign policy was a personal uh, obsession. But since Nehru, um, Modi is the first prime minister to invest considerable time and resources in foreign policy and to treat uh, foreign policy as his own um, as his own domain. Yeah, I mean, I should qualify my question. I think you've you've said first foreign policy president since Nehru. So I should qualify it uh, with that. Now, from Nehru's perspective, it was a requirement because of the everything was new for India at the time, uh, and yet subsequent prime ministers, um, as you as you suggest, kind of pushed that aside and focused on domestic issues. Why does Modi see foreign policy now as such an important issue for India and one that he needs to be directly involved in? Well, there are two three reasons. One, he's seeking to increase international profile of the country. He wants India to play a bigger role internationally, though at present, India punches far below its weight. It represents one-sixth of the world's population, but doesn't play a role globally in, in, you know, in consonance with its demographic size. And Modi is seeking to expand India's global footprint. But foreign policy and international diplomacy also allow Modi to distract attention from domestic problems. He faces serious domestic challenges and, um, and international di diplomacy, uh, especially uh, high-level symmetry, uh, helps to focus national attention on issues other than domestic problems. So it is a way for Modi to put the focus on the bigger picture so that the domestic governance issues 
did not get the spotlight. So often, for example, and he's, and he's traveling a lot. Uh, he has traveled a lot internationally. Uh, and even though elections are approaching in a few months, he's still continuing to travel extensively. He, in, in the month of July, uh, for example, uh, he, he had a packed foreign policy agenda. He traveled to South Africa for the BRICS summit very recently. And he has more travel uh, coming up in the, in, in, in the next few weeks. So with this packed foreign policy agenda, he ensures that the national attention uh, remains not entirely on domestic challenges. I want to move to a, uh, a very important bilateral relationship. You know, so much of India's past has been focused on one relationship, uh, and that's with Pakistan. But over the years, the importance of China and India's relationship to China has uh, increased incredibly, especially as China has grown more economically powerful and politically assertive. So I want to focus on that issue for a second. Um, you know, India and China share a very long land border and went to war over territory in 1962. And these two countries have been skirmishing at various sites along the border ever since. Now, last year, tensions reached a boil and some observers were quite concerned uh, that the situation in Doklam along the Indian-China-Bhutan border might escalate out of control. Can you give us an overview of that incident, where things stand today, and what that can tell us about the balance of power in Asia? China essentially is a, is a revisionist power. It is still seeking to change its political frontiers. And the South China Sea is a good case of how China is still working to expand its frontiers the Himalayas are another area where China is incrementally, through small actions, through small steps, seeking to push the border further southwards. And the Doklam episode was a result of the Chinese strategy of um, seeking to expand uh, its borders. Doklam is a remote plateau which is, um, which is claimed by Bhutan. Uh, Bhutan is one of the smallest countries in the world. It's so small that it's, it's difficult to find Bhutan on, on, a, on a world map. And yet China, which is one of the world's largest countries, lays claims to several areas of Bhutan, including Doklam. Doklam is about a 90 square kilometer plateau. So it's not a large plateau, but it's a very crucial plateau. Its strategic location is of great importance to India. India is a security guarantor of Bhutan, and it intervened last summer to stop the PLA from building a military road through Doklam to the Indian border. That road would have uh, allowed China to bring in tanks and other, uh, other heavy weaponry to the India border. So India intervened as a security guarantor of Bhutan, and India's intervention helped stop the construction, but only after uh, a 10-week-long military standoff, during which um, 
China unleashed almost a daily barrage of threats to teach India a lesson. But ultimately, uh, the two sides decided to disengage and to withdraw from the standoff side. But no sooner had the standoff ended than China quietly began encroaching into Doklam. And today, if you look at the developments over the past 10 months, what has happened is that the PLA has incrementally seized, seized much of Doklam. In other words, it has presented a faith company to Bhutan. And Bhutan has basically been given the choice of um, either you accept what uh, China has done or uh, risk a war. Um, so um, Doklam is a reminder, just like South China Sea is a reminder, that uh, China's favorite strategy uh, of frontier expansion is uh, a strategy based on salami slicing. That is a slice-by-slice -slice approach. Uh, it it uh, seeks to expand slowly uh, in a way that um, the other side uh, is, is caught by surprise. And, and, and these small steps cumulatively uh, result in a fundamental change on the ground in China's favor. So there are important lessons uh, to draw from China's actions in Doklam as, you know, in the same way that, you know, uh, important lessons uh, to draw from China's uh, change of the status quo in the South China Sea. Yeah, and what, what are those lessons? Walk us through them. Well, in the South China Sea, which is, you know, which is a very crucial international corridor, uh, more than one third of the global trade passes through the South China Sea. And the South China Sea has become the world's main maritime hotspot. Yeah, I would say, I wouldn't even say the South China Sea has emerged as a symbolic center of the international maritime challenges of the 21st century. And, and those challenges are a reminder that the fundamental choice that we face in the Indo-Pacific region is between a liberal, is between a liberal rules-based order and an illiberal hegemonic order. Uh, very, few, very few in the world would like to live in an illiberal hegemonic order. But this is exactly what we will get if countries, like-minded countries, do not work together to, to, to ensure that aggressive unilateralism is not cost-free. Uh, this is the real lesson, I think, uh, that the South China Sea and, and Doklam um, convey to, uh, to the entire Indo-Pacific region. I mean, I guess the question for me is, you know, if we look at Doklam, I think, you know, uh, you made the point that India took a stand and defended Bhutan, at least through action and, uh, and deployment. Um, and yet at the moment, um, it seems as if India in some ways doesn't necessarily want to talk about the fact that there are still Chinese troops stationed there and that the issue 
hasn't fully been resolved, um, but from a uh, discussion point, it's something that certainly uh, doesn't need to be making headlines anymore, at least from an Indian perspective. Um, if, if you look at the, the South China Sea example, I mean, Modi has been very strong uh, in his rhetoric, at least in the past. He, I think he challenged China's, quote, 18th century expansionist mindset. And although he wasn't referring or using China's name directly, I think it was interpreted as such, specifically uh, China's actions in the South China Sea. And yet China's ability to expand has essentially gone unchallenged. They've ignored international rulings against them. Uh, and South China Sea is, for all intents and purposes, their domain. Precisely. So is there a strategy, I guess? I mean, if, if this is the, the, the reality on the ground is being changed by China's in, encroachment, how do countries like India and Australia and Japan and the United States push back? It's a good question. About two years ago, an international tribunal ruled against China. This was in the, in the case brought by the Philippines against China. And, and that tribunal, in its unanimous ruling, knocked the bottom out of China's expansive claims in the South China Sea thereby stripping those claims of any legitimacy in international law. Yet, paradoxically, since that ruling, China's expansionism in the South China Sea has accelerated. Because China has changed the status quo in the South China Sea without firing a single shot or incurring any international costs. And the public disdain with which uh, China greeted the international tribunal's uh, ruling showed that international law matters to Beijing only when it can serve its own interests. Otherwise, international law for China is bendable and expandable, expendable. Because there is no mechanism in international law to enforce any ruling, China was able to postpone on that verdict and brazenly declare that it would ignore it. Now, this, this poses a serious challenge for major democracies like India, Australia, Japan, and the United States. Because if um, international law is powerless against the powerful, then we can have no rules-based order. That's why the notion of universal compliance with a rules-based order remains an illusion. We all talk about a rules-based order, but we know that international law is powerless against the powerful. And China has repeatedly shown that it will act in open defiance of international law. There can be no universal compliance with a rules-based order unless we ensure that defined unilateralism is not cost-free. I think that remains the central message. Mm. Two years later from the Philippines' victory in prosecuting its case against China before an international tribunal. Right. I mean, the, 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 the response from China after that ruling was to pull the Philippines closer to it um, through its, its own bilateral relationship. Um, and unless there is, unless there's a mechanism to uh, withhold or uphold judgments in, in international law, 
like a global policeman, um, then international law in some ways, as you say, isn't as effective and potentially even meaningless. Um, I want to end by kind of wrapping this all back to one final question uh, related to, to India's grand strategy. And it seems to me that Modi's approach, at least with China, has been to somewhat be hedging in his approach. And what I mean by that is taking a bit more of an assertive stance in uh, territorial disputes, questioning China's Belt and Road Initiative and continuing support for Tibetans. But on the other hand, uh, holding bilateral summits and and suggesting visa-free travel uh, and other measures. Clearly, Modi understands that taking a more assertive stance against China's assertiveness uh, is important, yet risky and dangerous. And I wonder, from your perspective, if India's rise, at least from a foreign policy perspective, is dangerous. Now, we're talking about a very dangerous region uh, with lots of tensions, a new government in Pakistan that some critics suggest is pro-Taliban, a regionally uh, aggressive and assertive China. In such, a, in such a dangerous place, or an increasingly dangerous place, is a more regionally ambitious India potentially a recipe for conflict? India is a stable force in a region that uh, happens to be quite turbulent and roiled by extremism and terrorism. India, in fact, is a beacon of stability and democratic rule in a region so troubled. But given, given the troubled region, India faces massive security challenges. Uh, one challenge comes from the fact that China and Pakistan, two nuclear-armed neighbors, have a close strategic alliance. The Sino-Pakistan nexus presents India with a formidable challenge, a challenge that has become increasingly acute over the years because China is now increasingly penetrating Pakistan strategically, economically, and um, and Pakistan is now in, in a serious debt trap uh, beholden to China uh, economically and even for its security. And given, and given these realities, uh, whether India looks north or west, it uh, you know it it um, sees very serious military threats and challenges, and and therefore this kind of troubled neighborhood has forced India to look east, uh, east at Southeast Asia and East Asia. Uh, looking east allows India to align itself with economically dynamic nations and also to break out of its troubled neighborhood. But more importantly, looking east, which you know, which, which in Indian policy is now called Act East policy, looking east allows India to align itself along its historical axis. Historically, India looked east. India was very closely integrated with uh, the region that is now known as Southeast Asia. Cambodia, Indonesia, and other parts of Southeast Asia are still examples of of how Indian culture and Indian architecture traveled hundreds of miles across to these parts of of Southeast Asia. So this Act East policy of India 
is part of India's grand strategy to mitigate the effects of a very troubled neighborhood. Well, I think, Brahma, that's probably a good place for us to leave it. We've, we've covered a lot of ground and we've looked at some of the domestic challenges and the foreign policy issues. But most importantly, we're ending on a note of why India's rise and, and more uh, assertive foreign policy look is so important for the region. So I want to thank you very much for your time today explaining all this to us. Thank you. It's good chatting with you. That was Brahma Chalani, Professor of Strategic Studies at the New Delhi-based Center for Policy Research, a fellow at the Robert Bosch Academy in Berlin, and author of nine books, including Water, Peace, and War, Confronting the Global Water Crisis. And that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review our podcast, and subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you like what you hear, why not subscribe to our latest editorial offering, On Point, available at www.project-syndicate.org. Until next time, I'm Greg Bruno.